it's about discovery and, and you don't really know what you're going you're gonna to get until you pull that paper off the press. Friends, and welcome to the 52nd episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where, if you like Pine Copper Lime, and you want to donate a few dollars to us each month, it really makes a difference to us. So, printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by our sponsor, Speedball Art Products, who've been bringing a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Their newest initiative is Speedball's Print Posse. Working with many of our close Pine Copper Lime friends, including Killjoy, Martin Mazora, and John Hancock, they've created a brand new line of custom printing inks to push your practice even further. So head on over to the Speedball Print Posse shop at speedballart.com to find where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. And remember, print friends, you have five days left to get your donation of $50 or more in to the Save the Docs Thrash House project. Anyone who makes this donation will be entered in to win a fantastic package of materials. Thanks to our sponsor, Speedball, the prizes include Carborundum Gel, a 4-inch brayer, Akua Printing Plate, Akua Intaglia Ink in Carbon Black, and the Rustic and Regulator Set, complete with one each of the eight new Print Posse inks. To enter, just send a screenshot of your donation of $50 or more to the Doc's Thrash House on their Instagram page by July 25th for your chance to win. And as always, there's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Karen O'Ramus. Karen worked for 15 years as an associate professor in the College of Arts and Creative Enterprises at Zayad University in the United Arab Emirates. There she was responsible for the establishment and development of the first printmaking studio and printmaking discipline in the nation's capital of Abu Dhabi. She is also an accomplished printmaker whose practice explores the unpredictability and fragility of life from both a universal and personal perspective. This is emphasized through her examination of the concept of physical and environmental decay brought about by the passage of time and influenced by her background in the study of archaeology. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to dig deep with Karen Aramis. Hi, Karen. How's it going? It's good. How are you doing, Miranda? Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this today. I'm very excited to speak with you. I'm really excited to catch up and to learn more about you and your printmaking and all the positions that you've had kind of around the world in the printmaking world. Because, yeah, we met at an SGCI was it in Knoxville that we met? No, 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 I'm not sure. Well, it might have been Portland. It might have been Portland. It was either, no, I think it was before Portland. I think it was Knoxville. Okay. I think it was. Yeah. At the time, you were at the, I want to say Zaid University? No, Zayed yes, Z- yes. University. Zayed University in the United Arab Emirates. Correct. And I was just completely you know, impressed by how far that you'd come to travel to be in Knoxville. And um, then we got to talking and I just thought that you were doing some really beautiful work. And I was looking forward to seeing you again in Puerto Rico. But of course, life happened in unexpected ways in 2020. And so we didn't get a chance to do that. So I feel like this is a nice little placeholder catch up kind of learning until hopefully we meet again next year. So this will be good. Yeah. Hopefully sooner than later. Exactly, exactly. 
So if you could give a little introduction for who you are and where you are and what it is you're doing now, just before we kind of dive into more specifics, I would love that. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and I did my BFA in printmaking and a minor in classical archaeology at Concordia University in Montreal. And I completed my archaeological field school at the University of Warwick in Coventry, England. After getting that degree, I moved to Rome, Italy for three years, where mm. I studied painting and printmaking at the Accademia di Belle Arti di Roma, so the Academy of Fine Arts in Rome. And I worked as an archaeologist throughout the summer months in Calabria. And after three years in Italy, I enrolled into the MFA program in printmaking at the Tyler School of Art of Temple University in Philadelphia in the United States. And once I graduated from there, I continued on there teaching part-time, and I then accepted a position at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, where I worked for 15 years as an associate professor, where I was responsible for the development of the printmaking studios and curriculum, and I contributed as well to the establishment of the College of Arts and Creative Enterprises in my previous tenure as an academic administrator at that institution. Two years ago in August, I left the UAE and I accepted a position at Winthrop University as chair of the Department of Fine Arts in the College of Visual and Performing Arts in South Carolina in the United States. So that's where I am now. Yeah, yeah. So not, you know, not too much travel, you know, pretty, pretty steady, you know, straight, straight forward. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> I love traveling. It's it's always been as when I did my study abroad as an undergraduate, that was it for me. Mm. You know, it, that that was it. I just needed to learn more about the world and I knew there was something much bigger beyond the space that I grew up in and I have fam both my my parents are from Europe, so I I introduced to various cultures from a very young age, so it's uh yeah, and I I'm plan to keep on traveling, but I'm, I'm very happy to be back in North America um, and ground myself and lay some roots for my children who are very young. They were both born in the UAE and mm. it was time. It was time to come back to North America. Yeah. And I'm very happy. Yeah, definitely. So how old are your children then? I have a five-year-old, Lucas, and I have a seven-year-old girl, Ella. Aww. Yeah, because I think that that's, you know, as someone who lives abroad and thinks about what it is to start a family abroad, you know, if, if that's what we what we end up doing, it's an interesting thing to me about sort of, you know, when do you when do you make that jump to lay down roots? Because it feels like you need to do it when they're under a certain age to be like as less disruptive, right? It's sort of, you know, I think that the... yeah pulling a 15 year old out of a continent that they've known their whole lives to another is I feel like very different than pulling a five-year-old away. Um, and of course, you know, transition is, can always be chaotic for any family, but yeah, it definitely seems like the timing in that is probably, you know, something to consider. Absolutely. And it, it all worked out great. We're my family and I are very happy where we live and I love my job. So We're we're, we're excited. Excellent. Excellent. So I'm always really curious about how people come to printmaking, but particularly for you, because you were studying archaeology, which, of course, is in the field of STEM. It's a science. And so it makes sense that that brought you to Rome, because from you know, I, I spent some time in Italy, not not in Rome, but I just remember these stories of, you know, you're you're digging a new well and people are just basically throwing, you know, bits of marble sculptures over their shoulder. It's just so, <laughs> so rich for archaeologists and for people who study that classics particularly. But then while you were there, that is actually how you came to printmaking. Is it there? Is it what it sounds like? But yeah, just please tell me that story. It's it actually was the opposite. Oh. 
Absolutely. It's actually the opposite. I, I started off, I knew right away here in Quebec, we have uh, after high school, we go up until grade 11. And then we do two years of what we call CEGEP, which is pre-university. Uh, but you, you get out all your, your gen eds. But what's so great about it is you have four semesters to really focus on the area that you're planning to study when you go to university. So for example, I chose visual art and I did four semesters of painting, four semesters of drawing, four semesters of printmaking, four semesters of sculpture. And it was a way for me to really see what area in the arts I wanted to focus on and, and it, it was printmaking. So that was something really exciting for me. And so when I applied to Concordia, I had my portfolio and I got into that, that department. So it really started off with printmaking. And when I did a study abroad as an undergraduate, I fell in love with archaeology. Mm. We were brought to Rome and all these other archaeological sites. And well, true story, um, either it was a, a very strong dream that I had, or I did have an out-of-body experience because I remember that it was one of the last nights in Rome and I had this hotel room overlooking the Roman Forum and I soared above it in this dream or out-of-body experience, which I like to believe it was. Yeah. And I somehow found that everything was so familiar to me. I felt like I was somehow connected to the society there. And in that dream, I said, I am going to go back to Canada and I'm not going to complete my degree. Well, I was completing my degree. I was about to graduate with my degree in printmaking. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to study classical archaeology with a focus on Rome. Mm. And once I'm done with that, I'm moving to Italy. And I did it. So it was very much, it was, it was the opposite. It, I found the archaeology later and somehow... Our archaeology was somehow intertwined with printmaking for me. Uh, it's they're both about. I was really working predominantly in intaglio um, in my undergraduate. That was really the area that I focused on, and I, both you know excavating and also within breaking down surfaces. And it's about discovery, and and you don't really know what you're gonna you're gonna get until you pull that paper off the press mm -hmm. or. You go into the archaeological site. You don't know what's going to be revealed underneath the earth. So there was really that element of surprise and chance, which has always been a really important draw for me, both to printmaking and also to archaeology. Yeah, and I think when we sort of talk more specifically about your current practice, it'll be possible to see some of the aesthetic connections between archaeology and and what and and your and your artistic practice but i'm also wondering absolutely if, yeah if there's a connection to between that kind of layered thinking in a way where it's building up or taking away but each layer gives information to the one above or below it in 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 order absolutely. to form a story yeah absolutely miranda i i only think in layers and i always think in layers and Everything I do, it, it, it's layers, whether it's in Photoshop or whether it's with my drawings on Mylar. I'm always thinking in layers. I, it's, it's strange. And, you know, you're thinking about the strata when you're excavating. It, it, it's, it's all about... See, I was, I was always, as an artist, I was always tasked on the archaeological sites with the drawing and sometimes I'd be in a trench drawing the strata and the earth and, you know, sometimes with artifacts jutting out. But just looking at civilization upon civilization, the site in particular that I worked on for many seasons was, uh, was uh, called Scolachum. It was in Calabria. And we were working specifically on a Roman site. But what was so exciting was as we were excavating, we were we were pulling up Greek artifacts because the Greek civilization had been there prior mm -hmm. and then also Norman artifacts. So it was really that point in my life where archaeology also directly you know, on a conceptual level directly found, you know, this idea of 
layered civilizations, it really heightened my awareness of the fragile world in which we live and how human life is also stratified. It's here and then it's gone. And, and there's evidence in the landscape. You know, the notion of life and death and the journey within has a it's vivid and apparent in our environment. And especially when I was working in archaeology, because you're looking at those layers, and you're documenting them through drawing and through photography. And, and that uncovering of history served as a grand form of inspiration in my artwork, mm. for sure. And it, you could, I mean, I'm not working in archaeology anymore, but it, it definitely, it definitely can be seen a lot of my experiences for example uh, when you're working in archaeology everything is mathematically mapped out and measured but what lies beneath is always a mystery it's it's unpredictable and those characteristics of order and disorder are elements that are found in my work and this is depicted through calculated lines that are then disrupted by the uncalculated and it's it's something that I was working on very consciously um, when I was working as an archaeologist, um, but those things are now finding their way into my work unconsciously, even though I'm still working on the fragility of life. That is something that is still has been the predominant theme in my work, but those elements of order and disorder are constantly featured in my work, and I definitely attribute it to my time as an archaeologist. Yeah, I minored in classical studies and uh, and and I had majored in aesthetics. And so there definitely were some crossovers in my studies, you know, where I would get classical art history courses that kind of all fed into it. And it's very difficult not to feel your smallness when you're looking at archaeology and and what I mean by that is when you truly get your mind into the place of understanding the grandness of civilizations gone by and how they must have seemed eternal when you were living in them when you saw something like the Colosseum in its heyday and now it's in ruin and 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 the kind of you know preciousness that we have for the objects is relatively new so i know when you go to rome and you're doing art history work in in rome which i did for just a little bit you know some of the buildings that you see they haven't fallen apart people just came and used those stones because they'd already been quarried you know why would you go and make new stones there is no there is no sense that this was something precious and so you know not only do you feel that smallness when you feel that sense of history but also the idea that only recently did we even sort of care that always struck me kind of emotionally as well about the whole experience of being in that headspace and seeing that history and touching that history and seeing the artifacts of people's lives who lived and died thousands of years ago. Yeah, it was a really emotional experience for me because it was one particular day. It was the last day of excavation of the season and the director had had mapped out a specific um, area where we were working and he then, we worked, we, we excavated and we found the, the legs of a, of, of a human. And, mm. and that for me was very difficult because it was probably the first time in my life that I was directly confronting death mm. and started to think, think about all these people who had been involved in these, in archaeology in the past. I, they didn't appear to see the preciousness in mm. it. It was just very clinical and, and there I was doing my technical drawings of this thing. And at the end of the day, they backfilled the dirt because it was the end of the season. And it just, it didn't feel good. Yeah. And uh, it was really haunting for me. And it was really, it that was sort of that, that point in time where I started to think about life and, and, um, and what it means. And so I know that that is something that you definitely explore in your current practice as well. You know, the physical and environmental decay that is inevitable through the passage of time, which 
chatting with you about your experiences with archaeology makes so much sense because I feel like though I've had more limited contact with it I've had those same feelings that feeling like I said sort of 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 smallness and of ephemerality of one's own existence is really powerful and did you know that this was something that you wanted to explore through your art right away um was it something that you'd always kind of worked on or was it a shift that happened after your experiences in Rome no, it was definitely the the type of work that I was doing in my undergraduate degree was very architectural. Uh, initially, uh, that was a direction that I was interested in going in because I was so drawn to you know very precise, calculated drawings that were you know a lot of right angles and mm-hmm. uh, you know. I'm a big fan of Canaletto, for example. Uh-huh. I, I was doing that kind of work. Definitely not to the degree that he does it. But, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of architectural work. It was uh, very representational. And I spent a lot of time going to Italy and, 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 and doing etchings of these monuments and these fantastic churches. And mm. that's what I was doing. It, in terms of, it was more about, uh, an interest in the architecture and then my interest in sort of perfecting an aqua tint and and how to you know how to make a perfect etching it was it was very technical at that stage and oh, I love I ha- I'm sitting amongst some of these drawings right now here in my dad's uh, apartment and it, it's funny because once I started working as an archaeologist it was instant, and my work started to take on the appearance of something that was abstract, mm. but they were in no way abstract. They were things that I was staring at for eight hours a day, like these trenches, the stratigraphy. Uh, and I, I'm not sure many people have seen some of those earlier etchings that I did. I, as I was working on my degree in archaeology before I moved to Italy, I was still working in the print studios at Concordia University um, as a monitor. So I was still making work, even though I had finished all my coursework for printmaking. But yeah, I was all of a sudden, people were like, you've gone abstract. And it, there's nothing <laughs> abstract about this. These things exist. <laughs> um, and it, it, just, it was automatic. And it was, it was funny because when I moved to Italy, I, I remember... Initially, when I before I started the archaeology, I was you know f- standing back and photographing these wonderful monuments. But now I was more interested in the the little little things that were happening within these monuments. So I remember, gosh, I don't remember what metro station it was, but I went up and down the escalator for about I don't know an hour trying to capture the the decay in between the handrails of the up and down escalator because. And I was running up to buildings and photographing things. And people were like, what are you doing? Or <laughs> people thought I was strange. I was not like the other tourists, but I was very interested in the marks and the the patterns and the shapes and the the wabi-sabi of, mm. of these buildings, you know, things that have deteriorated through the passage of time. Every mark, line... Uh, scrape, crumble, rusted. I was very interested in these beautiful forms in these old monuments um, and also just like these wonderful trenches and the strata that I was drawing in, on archaeological excavations. So it, it just happened. It, was, it wasn't a conscious thing at all. I, I, I just started, that, that's what happened in my work and I, I sketch a lot and I'll do these representational, observational drawings quite frequently, but nobody really sees those works <laughs> anymore. Yeah. So it certainly just, it just sent its way in. I was going to say that sounds actually like a yeah really natural and sort of understandable progression in terms of your, your interest and what was sort of capturing your attention and kind of thinking back to the time that I had in Italy and that, that living side by side with history in this way that of course, we as North Americans do, but the history, you know, the thousand year old history that we live with was systematically destroyed and intentionally destroyed. And so rather than seeing, you know, the artifacts of indigenous history are all around us that was erased in 
Italy in particular, you know, they're getting that sort of through line where they can live side by side with a history that feels like their own in a in a deep generational way and that you know i i run this little wine shop in venice and so has six generations before me <laughs> and it's great it's so it's so <laughs> wonderful and as someone coming from north america i found it just incredibly captivating and also what i found was interesting about it is sort of at least the italians that i got to know while i was there who were all sort of young bohemian musician guys you know they weren't interested in it you know they 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 were like i don't i don't care about this i don't i don't i don't care about oh it's such and such saint's day and this is what we do on it and this is you know this is how old this is they're like i want a job <laughs> you know they're, they're, yeah. They, yeah, because they're like, they're like, I want a good education and a job. And so in a way, I because I heard their sort of internal dialogue about that, I felt really fortunate that I still could see it with with the kind of romance around it that, of course, if you grew up in it, you might not be able to. So I can I definitely completely understand that being captivated by that and having that natural progression for you. In terms yeah. of uh, what you're working on now, I, it's, it seems like a lot of like a lot of mapping imagery again, a lot of sort of layering. Could you speak a little bit to your more current bodies of work and what you're exploring and how? Sure, I'll I'll just go through like a little uh, line from the archaeology and how I got to where I was today. My work has always somehow been connected to the fragility of life. And I look at place, family, heritage, memory, and history to motivate my work. And I deal with issues such as war, illness, human metamorphosis, and both natural man-made disaster and death. So while investigating these themes over the last 25 years, a visual element that has always been continuous in my work is mapping and charting. And I've always sort of drawn to, again, if I link back to the archaeology, this idea of fictional charts and symbols um, that are derived from a variety of different locations. And I think of them as charts that symbolize units of time. They serve as unconventional calendars that count time, but not necessarily in an orderly fashion. And Mm. a traditional calendar tells us what we already know. February comes after January and Tuesday after Monday and one Mm. o'clock after 12. But it doesn't tell us what events will encompass those months, days, and hours. It's the unpredictable. And after archaeology, I I had the opportunity to work in Croatia on a task force to help rebuild the country after the war. And at that time, being of Croatian descent, I had a real intense empathy with the landscape and for the people who lost everything that they had. And it left a very marked impression on me. And after having worked in archaeology and looking at the <laughs> thousands of years that pass and you know, working at something in this sort of longitudinal fashion and, and looking at thousands of years in this one moment of stratigraphy, as opposed to this drastic, horrible war that unfolded in the country, I went out there to work on restoration projects and also with my archaeological uh, experience to help help uncover and save some of the archaeological sites mm. that were damaged in the war. And so that, that was something in my work where I was started to become very interested in, again, the fragility of life, but not only this sort of decay that happens over a period of time, but something that can happen at any given moment without notice. And so I started working a lot with uh, the idea of chance operations and working with fire. And I worked above a glass studio in Philadelphia. So I always went down there to warm up because I was working in an old building and everything was really cold in the winter. I'd go down there, bring my prints and show show my, my peers in the glass studio. And I started I started to work with hot glass to draw on my, on my prints to let things decay and let things unfold in a way that I could I couldn't control or I could control to some extent. Um, and I was also very interested in getting these objects from trash yards, metal objects from old car parts, and putting them into the furnace and then working with branding. 
Um, I really love this idea of not being able to control or to control it to some extent. And so my work moved sort of in that that direction. And the last decade, my work has specifically addressed decay and transformation through the result of Alzheimer's disease, mm. um, which unfortunately appropriated my mother over several years. And the the conceptual support found in this work, again, has a symbolic underpinning that can found in several bodies of my work over the last 25 years, which include maps that signify place and distance, um, which demonstrates both the physical and me mental distance that we experience throughout her illness. Mm. And, and the maps often, often represented real locations that were manipulated, masked, or confused. And investigating how disease can slowly decay memory pathways, making them latent, dormant, or unintelligible. This sort of embodies, embodied in the confusion experienced by my mother throughout her illness. In recent years, I have been exploring um, the exploration, the conceptual exploration of matter, energy, mind, and spirit, and their interplay immersed in the experience of the ephemeral. This has been like key foci within my creative practice. And I have been exploring connections between the spiritual and the scientific uh, with an aim to visualize and represent impermanence and the invisible. These are things, these investigations specifically looking at the body as a vessel and how disease can slowly change the physical, and ultimately the loss of the tangible presents the search for the infinite nature of energy and its locations. And so my creative research has focused on mapping out such places through imagined cartographies and descriptions of other conceptual realms that exist in inaccessible obfuscated locations. So a body of work that I recently had on exhibit in Venice, Italy in November, thankfully just prior to the pandemic striking, was titled Skewered Locations in Pursuit of Paradise. And in this body of work, I aim to map out unknown locations through these imagined cartographies, which conceptually depict utopia heaven, paradise, or other realms that we know about through some description, but we can actually arrive to. So these works are directly um, inspired through my personal experience, literature on notions of heaven and other, and other realms, and also scientific pinpointing of particular locations that we cannot visit or experience fully from our latitude, such as the stars. So mm. I've been working with a data retrieve from digital software called Stellarium, where one could pinpoint the exact coordinates of specific stars and planets, for example. And additional data, such as how far would it be to arrive to these locations from other specified GPS positions here on Earth um, at specific dates and at specific times. So a lot of the map imagery um, that you see in my recent work is um, supported by these coordinates. These maps are created through these coordinates and scientific evidence through Stellarium. And again, using these GPS positions somehow linked again to mapping and just trying to find or trying to understand or make sense of where one goes when the physical no longer exists. And there is a parallel body of work that I'm working on right now called Circumventing Obfuscation. This is my most recent work, which continues to explore mortality, ephemerality, and the fragility of life. So obfuscation referring to the obscuring of communications intended meaning. So hmm. obfuscation is a Latin word. I always somehow jump back to the Latin um, <laughs> in my work make reference to it. Um, and the goal of this research is to conceptually circumvent or enlighten what has been darkened. So to illustrate this point further, imagery of looking at disease, past growth, and also efforts towards preservations and cures, uh, just to engage the audience to observe biological phenomena in ways that it may otherwise be obfuscated or perpetually invisible. So 
when I was still in the UAE, I got a grant to create some of the work um, that I'm working on right now. And I was working with a uh, microbiologist and a computational chemist to learn more about visualizing the invisible. So I was doing that with the Stellarium software. And then I moved into, um, I love this idea of microscopy and um, human microbiome and genetics and microscopy and neuroscience and brain tissue and memory from a fine art perspective. And I, I started off by just taking swabs from my doorknob at the university <laughs> and watching things grow. And it was, it was amazing. Mm -hmm. And, and, and scary, <laughs> especially yeah. now that we're, yeah. you know, knowing that <laughs> with this pandemic, I'm, I have always been a germaphobe and I, oh. I, you know, I'm secretly happy that I can walk around now with my mask and my gloves <laughs> and disinfect things <laughs> everywhere I go because yeah, I'm not looked at. <laughs> yeah, you're just, you're just, yeah, you're, you're, you're living how you've always wanted to live. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess my most recent work, I'm I'm really interested in in this idea of bacterial growth on petri dishes, which mm -hmm. I record and I edit through the process with digital microscopes. And so I did a lot of that legwork. I've got a lot of data um, and a lot of imagery that I'm working on animating. I have one animation that's complete already. There's so much work to do, and I have so much stuff to work with. Mm -hmm. It's just finding the time, but th that that that's what I'm working on right now. And I don't know if you noticed in my work, I, I'm very interested in examining how traditional printmaking has been infused with emerging technologies. And that's really been at the nexus of my research in recent years. Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing a lot of what I think are really cool three-dimensional <laughs> prints from these bacteria in petri dishes that I've grown where I'm printing them out several working with various some digital prints and screen printing a little bit of etching and I layer these prints onto the uh, museum board and mm -hmm. then I go in and I sequentially laser cut them to sort of mimic what was happening in the uh, in the petri dishes and it's mm -hmm. funny because when I had my show in Venice I had these larger pieces they're about 45 by 45 centimeters imagery from the petri dishes that I then sequentially cut and reworked with the laser cutter again breaking into the surfaces I'm always thinking about mm -hmm. archaeology and then bringing back screen printing and building up the surfaces adding wax to create another type of materiality over the print to obfuscate it slightly but then bringing back screen printing and printing on top of that so again it's it's somehow related to the archaeology again this idea of strata and it was funny because I had these pieces in the gallery in Venice and I had a lot of people ask me if it was safe for them to go oh. right up to them yeah <laughs> um, asking if you know, there was actually, in fact, bacteria. Mm -hmm. and, and while that was really my original, my original intent, I soon learned that that would not be a healthy way of proceeding. <laughs> um, but I was, I was enamored by, it was two years ago at the uh, Venice Biennale, the Israeli pavilion was, mm -hmm. was amazing because she, the artist, uh, whose name I can't recall at the moment, was actually working with, with mold and bacteria mm. in the space. And they had that disclaimer outside <laughs> of the pavilion. It was really cool. And it was my original intention. And I did a lot of work, um, but I thought I, it would probably be best to reproduce these things yeah. um, with print um, instead of getting people's sick. Yeah. Well, I have to I have to say so my favorite science courses were always microbiology. I loved loved that kind of, you know, taking a swab and and you know, putting it in the petri dish and then popping it in the oven and coming back the next day and it's like a reveal. It's like a print reveal. You open up the little the little um incubator door and you don't know what you're going to have. And your your series, I think it's Colonium Ignota, if I'm saying that correctly. They yes. look that's unknown colonies. Yeah, they look 
shockingly like petri dishes like when i saw them um i had the kind of the same reaction like i could tell right away that that you know like you said that they are made of of board and paper and ink but the feeling that you've captured of the petri dish is really palpable and particularly for me it just brought me right back to those hours in the microbiology lab but as you said it also has that that layering with archaeology and then this kind of element too of you know t- you were talking about having you know being interested in in the ways we visually represent the unseeable or the unknowable and i was thinking while you were saying that like that must have been what microbiology felt like you know the first time people look through a microscope the first time people got to found a way to grow these bacteria it was these things that are all around us that it, dramatically affect our lives and our well-being and particularly with the recent research about our personal microbiomes and how much that affects our health and well-being that is dramatically a part of who we are that must have felt like for the first time when humans started doing it that they were seeing what had previously been unseeable can you imagine the excitement and and it's just so hard until you actually engage with it to imagine, mm-hmm. to, to see it happen. I, I, I don't remember doing biology, microbiology in, in high school. Mm. And so that's why I, I wanted to work with these, the science department at my last institution to, to, to learn a little bit more and, and find new ways. I, I love science. I, I'm like obsessed with it. And, and, and that's why I, the archaeology was something that I went into. It was a little too clinical for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I like very much the romantic side yeah. of archaeology, uh, and and I haven't I haven't been working in archaeology in a very long time now. It's, it's I guess since I moved to the UAE, but definitely I love I love mapping and GPS and 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 the stars and astrology and. Uh, and astronomy and all of that for me, it, it's all relevant to what I do. And, and I just have so much that I, so much that I still need to do. Yeah. And I, I don't know where I'm going to find the time to do it, but I'm excited. I'm excited about, about all the things that I want to do mm-hmm. and explore and research and make. I think that's, that's, that's such a beautiful place to be in. Like it can feel kind of overwhelming when you do realize you have this this such a rich vein to mine and you're like, well, I may never get to the bottom of it, but at least I'll never be bored, which I think is a beautiful place to be. And my one of my favorite courses that I took in my postgraduate work was one that explored the ways in which science and print overlap. And it was actually through printmaking in the human body. And I think one of the things that gets lost a little bit but is one of my favorite parts of printmaking is the places where it overlaps with science overlaps with the standardization of information with sharing information and the fact that it is of course a technology and so I've always appreciated in your work how it dives into that a bit because I think it can get lost a little bit that of course, while all visual culture has a connection to the sharing of information, printmaking has this incredible int- intimacy with that history, which is beautiful and moving and so important, so important to h- human history. Absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah. Well, with the time we have left, because I definitely want to be respectful of your time, um, I want to make sure that we sure. do get a chance to chat a little bit about the 15 years that you spent in the United Arab Emirates and how you developed the first printmaking studio in Abu Dhabi and just working there and in that, you know, very different culture and kind of starting from the ground up and building what you did over the decade and a half that you were there. Yeah, with pleasure. It was a, a really, obviously, a big chunk of my life and I'm very happy that I was able to experience what I did in those 15 years um, and contribute in the way that I did when I was there. I, a big part of me coming back was I felt that I had really succeeded uh, with what my personal, my, the academic strategic plan that I put into place when I, when I got there. 
I, we could talk an entire hour on this. I know. So I have to be mindful of your time. I, I was, what, I was what, what, yeah, go ahead. I was like, I was like, oh, I, we only have like 10 minutes, but I really want to talk uh, about this. So we okay. can just, we'll have to have you on it again for maybe a, a deep dive of this, but just kind of, yeah, as best as we can, sure. I'd love to hear what you can share with us. So, okay. Well, one of the things that is, since we're talking about printmaking is I have to, I have to say how printmaking and the multiple functioned as such an important vehicle for my students to establish themselves in the complex social environment. wherein more than 80% of the country's population were expatriates. Mm-hmm. So I guess in order to understand the function that printmaking and related media performed in contemporary UAE societies, it's important to understand a little bit about the country itself and its rapid growth. So the country's 48 years old and in such a short mm. time, and I'm, I mean, it baffles me when I think about it. In just the 15 years that I was there, there was a tremendous shift in the lifestyle of the Emirati population and the UAE landscape. But it had a very short and modest history of the visual arts and an mm-hmm. even shorter one in printmaking. Um, and in this short time, uh, within the 48 years, this country rapidly shifted from a modest pearl and date industry to one that was independently rich in oil. So mm-hmm. I spoke with students in my class who were in their 20s, whose grandparents and, and people were having children very young. They have their children quite young mm. in the UAE in, in their early 20s. Um, and then, of course, um, my students' parents had them even younger and and their <laughs> grandparents had them even younger. So if you're thinking about that time frame, some of these students' grandparents were you know, my age. So mm-hmm. they, they were telling me that uh, they their grandparents would go by camel between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, and it would take them one week, and that they were living in tents. And Uh I go to various locations, these great big shopping malls, or these amazing structures, like if you think about the world's tallest building, or, you know, the indoor ski hills, Mm and side shopping malls, and these crazy seven-star hotels and rotating buildings, you know, these have all displaced the temporary Bedouin dwellings that once marked this desert landscape. And I literally saw the city go up before my eyes Mm. in the time that I was there. And then going to some of these locations, you see our students' grandmothers almost scared and, 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 you know, amazed and what is going on. And it is, it just baffles me how fast the country developed. And so concurrent to all of these projects, you know, like temperature controlled covered cities for Expo 2020 and rotating buildings and all these high profile initiatives. They have also the country's location has also attracted art dealers and gallery owners Mm -hmm. and curators and educational institutions from around the globe. And so, as you are aware, there are key cultural projects that were specifically initiated to stimulate the economy, such as the man-made island, uh, the Saria Island, which um, now houses the Louvre Museum, which right. was designed by Jean <laughs> Nouvel, which I'm so happy. They were talking about doing this when I first arrived. So I actually went to the opening of the Louvre, which was very exciting, and the Guggenheim, um, which <laughs> we were working with very closely. They haven't created their structure yet, but um, what's exciting is that you know we are working with these great institutions um, at the university um, on a lot of programming. But you know, prior to 2007, I mean, there really wasn't a lot of support for UAE artists. Mm -hmm. In 2007, we had the international art fairs. They were initiated both in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And this provided like a stark contrast to to where we were exhibiting uh, artwork prior to that Mm -hmm. um, in shopping malls and in parking lots and in hotel lobbies and on the beach. Hmm. So it was really an amazing, amazing uh, thing. And we all stood in disbelief because it was very hard in the early days to try and get people to show our students' work. I remember going to the Abu Dhabi Cultural Foundation and saying, I would love to have an exhibition of these Emirati 
artworks and they're oh we don't have Emirati art artists and I said what do you mean we don't have Emirati artists I, I work with them yeah and they said well we mostly just show the work of the artists through the embassies from their respective countries. It was very, very difficult. Um, there was serious, there was a serious disconnect between the financial investment mm -hmm. um, and the and in facilities and events versus the limited support and fostering of um, indigenous local artists mm -hmm. and art fairs and related events were not very, they weren't very interested at the time to host Emirati artists. And so printmaking was a way for us to get work out, um, the multiple out in a variety of different locations and car showrooms and in shopping malls in, in a variety of different locations. So people could see that UAE artists actually did exist and they were, they were, they were there. And, and so disseminating their work, um, throughout various locations and doing a few guerrilla tactics and having students create prints and then reproduce those prints and handing them out as postcards mm. and at the art fairs because they were underrepresented in the earlier years. So they were, they were not represented at all. In fact, um, in the earlier years, the art fair that has changed since. Um, so these, sort of educational strategies to highlight UAE artists was, I guess the university was really the only true breeding ground and support up until recently for the, that generation of artists and printmakers in the UAE. And I, it was really my task, if you will, or my plan to make sure that they got their work out into the community. And in 2009, our students actually had the opportunity to show their work in conjunction with the Venice Biennale. I co-curated an exhibition. Uh, we, we had a UAE pavilion uh, and the artists were, UAE artists were very interested in being involved with this big event. Mm -hmm. So uh, my colleague at the time, Janet Bellotto and I curated a show called Emerge New Ways of World Making to celebrate this great event. Um, I believe the UAE was the first country in the Gulf to be represented at the Venice Biennale. And mm. this was such a momentous milestone because we were able to get so much international attention that all of a sudden back home in the UAE, things started to emerge. Mm. And that's hence the title um, in their own country. And there was a lot of support. Um, we did another exhibition in Venice in conjunction with the 2011 Biennale, Emerged to Radiating Ports. Um, and in both those exhibitions, we had repetitive imagery in shop windows and restaurants. Uh, we had the students uh, performing on gondolas, handing out uh, printed cards with homemade perfume samples, distributing them while they're on the gondolas, um, just trying to get some, get some attention for these students. And, and that, that was something that I did throughout my time there. And it, it is amazing to, to see how things have changed in such a short time. Now, our students from my institution are showing their work internationally. Mm. Uh, they're showing their work in their own country. They're, they're doing their MFA at institutions around the globe. And it is very exciting. And I think also as an academic administrator, um, I had the opportunity to look at the big picture and affect meaningful change at the yeah. institution. So I was just invited to be the assistant dean for the College of Arts and Sciences. The Department of Fine Arts was a part of that college. Mm -hmm. And then at that time, I proposed a College of Arts and Creative Enterprises. And when that dream was realized, myself and my colleague, Janet Bellotto, we became co-deans of the college, mm. so to speak. She was running the Dubai campus and I was running the Abu Dhabi campus and really built something big. For Emirati women, uh, that's one thing that I didn't have the opportunity to see through. We tried so many times to, and I don't know if we have time to talk about gender in the arts, mm. but um, 
position where I was working, the art program was was for females only. And while we had male students at the institution who were interested, uh, it wasn't necessarily a degree that they were encouraged to pursue. So uh-huh. they were there were several Emirati artists, and we did have courses, male artists, and we did have courses for them. But in terms of, it was very difficult to run a course with a very low cohort of students, male mm-hmm. students. And so I think that that's the next stage for the institution. Um, we worked, it, it just wasn't the time. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we went from studios, I remember my colleague was teaching darkroom photography out of a broom closet <laughs> and when I arrived, my predecessor, um, who was there for a few years, uh, they purchased a press and they had a, a fume hood and they were doing they were doing some print. But I had the opportunity to help build a two floor art building mm. um, on Abu Dhabi's new campus and also build the the studios in Dubai in 2006. So becoming a college and having yeah, as I said, a, a building, an art building, and being able to contribute to that in my role as an academic administrator is really, really exciting. Um, I feel like I contributed um, something really great in this world. Yeah. Um, and as sad as it was to leave, it was, I really had intended to go there for three years and <laughs> and, and, and come back, but it, it would have been like leaving a very young child unattended Mm. and I felt that it was my duty to continue on and and there was always something new to do Mm -hmm. and so it was it was an incredible experience and um, I I can't wait to go back in maybe five years time and see how things have changed because that that place moves fast yeah that sounds like such an incredible incredible experience and just to be a part of it and to see it and to influence it and to put your passion and your brains towards it. I think they were very lucky to have you. And I really, really wish we had like more time to do a deeper dive on it, but we'll just have to have you on again. And, and um, yeah, and, and talk about, you know, all kinds of things about like the, you know, the perception of art in a new country and gender in the arts and oh. academia and all mm-hmm. of that. It's, we can definitely talk more about that another time. There's so much. Yeah. <laughs> so much. <laughs> I, you know, you say they're lucky to have me. I, I feel very fortunate um, that I had that opportunity mm. and um, it's something that I'm very proud of. Yeah. Rightly so. Absolutely. Well, Before we sign off entirely, can you please let people know where they can find and follow your work and you and what you're doing? Absolutely. Well, I can be found, my work uh, can be found at karenaramis.com and I probably need to give it a good update (laughs) my website. Um, There's always so much going on. But I, yeah, KarenAramis.com is the best place um, that you can find me. Uh, and you could also, you can contact me via email um, through the website as well. And, and I should be posting my current projects, but I haven't done that yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely. Yeah, I think that I don't, uh, of all the printmakers I've talked to, I'm not sure one has said, you can find me on my website and it's perfectly up to date. So I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah, yeah. We're... It's been a yeah. It's, it's it's been a busy twenty years. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it really has. I was trying yeah. two departments this year, so it was double duty. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, they can definitely see your work there, and it will be. I'm sure it'll be updated at some point, and they can get in contact with you, which will be great. And. Thank you so much for for taking some time this evening to to chat with me. And it was great to to catch up and just, you know, speak with someone who's so engaged in the world and all of its beautiful aspects. It was really a pleasure. 
It was a pleasure speaking with you too, Miranda. Thank you so much again for inviting me and congratulations on the success of Pine Copper Lime. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I will be in touch um, as we get closer to, to publication and um, I'll look forward to working with you more in the future. I look forward to it as well. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Itazu Satoru. Itazu is a Tamron-trained printer who has been running a lithography studio in Tokyo for more than 30 years. We'll talk about the state and practice of contemporary printmaking in Japan, decades of collaborative printmaking, and the future of studio work in the age of COVID. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.